Hello everyone and welcome to the Northeast Law Review. I'm your guest host and my name is Harry Thomas and I'm a second year law student here at Newcastle. Today I'm joined by Michael Cordner, Technical Director at Admiral Law. So Michael, how's your 2021 been and how are you generally? Hello everyone, uh, very well, thank you Harry, and good to see you. Um, uh, how's 2021 been? Well, <laughs> uh, I'm in Wales for a starter, so it's slightly different to you guys uh, because we've got less, uh, fewer restrictions. And uh, we are out of the strictest of lockdowns at the moment, so we can travel around a bit. So things are looking a bit brighter for us than they are for you. Yeah, um, I'm a bit jealous, actually. <laughs> Good to get home at some point and uh, enjoy getting a haircut. But uh... <laughs> Yes, <laughs> my son took the shears out on me yesterday. <laughs> yeah, I got my sister to do mine before I came back up. But uh, <laughs> yes. Um... Right, so to begin, uh, a bit about your background, if that's okay. Where did you grow up? Where did you go to university? And how did you end up choosing law? Well, funnily enough, um, I was born and brought up in the Northeast. So I was born um, just outside of Durham. Um, and uh, at the age of 16, I came down to Wales. Uh, so finished my education off in Wales. Uh, but I was born, um, I'll, I'll set out a little bit of background because I think, uh, you know, the, it's, it's always useful to know sort of where people have come from generally. Uh, I was born in a council house in my grandmother's house, uh, in my grandmother's bed. Uh, and um, I was one of four. I was number two in the family. Um, and uh, my father was a journalist for one of the local newspapers up there, one of the regional newspapers. And my mother was a nursing uh, auxiliary. Uh, my dad worked for the... Um, uh, Durham Advertiser and the Hartlepool Mail. Durham Advertiser was a free rag now, I think, up there, but um, the Hartlepool Mail was a proper, at the time, proper regional uh, newspaper in the way that you would think of um, the journal, I think, as the Newcastle paper at the moment, isn't it? The journal uh, and the Chronicle. Um, uh, and, um, and I was of the children, I was the first to go to university and I was the first in the family to go to university as well. Um, so, uh, you know, background is interesting and uh, and that's how I how I came to get to Wales uh, and eventually because I did okay in my O&A levels at the, uh, as I recall then um, I, I managed to get into university I went to Southampton and studied law in Southampton. Oh, nice so um, what, what drove you towards law specifically when you went to university? Um, when I when I came down from Wales um, I from, from, from Durham to Wales, uh, I, I, obviously I went straight into my A's. I came down when I was 16, so I finished my um, O-levels, came straight into my A's. Um, and what led me to the law? Uh, at the age of 16, I looked at the subjects I was okay at, and I was probably equally good at the humanities as, as sciences, and uh, so it was a fairly even split for me between the arts and sciences. And uh, by the time I came down to Wales, I chose um, English history and geography. So I kind of plumped to go down the humanities route. I don't think necessarily if you're going into law, you have to have that sort of thinking. And I think, you know, there's a fair few scientists going to the law. But um, at that age, um, really my choice was not to particularly go into the law, but to sort of stick to that side of learning. And at the age of 18, with those A-levels uh, sort of in my bag, I then decided to keep my options over even further because I did law and law is one of those good or rounded degrees that everybody says will do you well in life, um, teaches you good analytical skills, good disciplines in uh, self-learning. Um, and, and, and still, even at the age of 18 and going into 
university to study law. It was, it was frankly for me about keeping the options open. Um, a lot of people, when they talk about their careers in law and how they got there, talk about very focused um, drives to become, you know, a commercial lawyer or a criminal barrister or whatever it is. Uh, I don't mind telling you that I drifted. And I think it's probably not a bad thing for people in university to hear that you can drift and actually do well, okay, eventually, as I think I have done. Um, but that was pretty much it for me. I think I probably started to look at the law as a career in a bit more detail when uh, around about the time my mother was having a divorce uh, when I was um, around about 18, 19. And um, I must admit, I, I looked at the work that the lawyer was generating and uh, even at that age, sort of arrogantly thought I could do better than that, uh, or that didn't look too difficult. Um, so partly, it's a, you know, it's a funny thing to say, but again, partly that was um, in my thinking as well. That it was a good all-round thing to do, and and maybe even I could do something like that. But the idea of becoming a professional, even at that point, um, as I say, within my family, uh, I would have been the only professional. Uh, and actually, thinking about it now, I probably still am so um so that's that's how i got to where i ended up um i'm not sure if your question sort of covers you know why did i choose becoming a solicitor rather than a barrister uh but if i deal with that yeah definitely um from um from southampton doing law i think by the time you're studying law at university uh as you will know right now you you start to think about well, what's next especially in the second year and going into the third um, when I was in second year, some people were starting to land um, training contract articles, as they used to call them. Uh, in the second year of university, some people, not many, but some people were starting to get training contracts. Um, and certainly people were starting to think already that they would either go into the bar or become a solicitor. There was, And frankly, some were also thinking about they wouldn't. They'd use law for something else entirely. And I had friends who went into accountancy and just went into industry. Um, but again, one of the default and almost easier options at that point certainly was to go into College of Law and study uh, that which the, the skills that you'd need to become a solicitor in practice. Um, but it was either law school or bar school. Um, and I figured at that point, despite my wittering on hopefully coherently right now, that I didn't have the advocacy skills to become a barrister. Yeah. Um, and perhaps I wasn't quick-witted enough, I don't know, um, to become a barrister and think on my feet. Um, but having met quite a few barristers since then, uh, I think that perhaps is, uh, that wouldn't put me off now. Yeah, uh, that, that's good to hear because uh, your general point about sort of drifting and not explicitly going in with the idea of a career or not sure wholly where it's going to go is, I can certainly relate to that on my journey for university, you know, it's just sort of take law, see where it goes, see what happens with that. Well, even studying what I think now is called the LPC, as I was doing in College of Law, um, if you'd asked me in that year when I was, you know, 21, 22, which area of law would I go in? I probably would have said probate and wills. Um, having just scored, I think it was 97% in the test at the time. Um, and I enjoyed it and it seemed very methodical and, the, you know, there was a fairly obvious set of rules that uh, applied dealing with, you know, dying intestate and the like. And, um, and that looked quite interesting. In fact, um, the area of law that I went into, which is effectively negligence and tort uh, and insurance, um, I didn't do well at all in university in that. 
partly because I was distracted by my girlfriend and the law lecture in taught was on a Monday morning and I was usually coming back from Canterbury on a, on a Monday morning on the train, but also because my tutor was terrible. Um, I won't name it. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, as I say, I, I think there's nothing wrong with that, that whole idea of uh, drifting. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think certainly when you when you do the College of Law course, the LPC, you do study everything that, you know, almost every area of law that you could do in practice. And I think that is the hardest of any of the years I've ever had in education, both in terms of the materials that you are thrown at you and you have to absorb and the time you have to put into it. Uh, it really is quite a serious year. Um, and, and for me, I, that was difficult. Uh, university had been uh, you know, quite enjoyable um, and you could take it at your own pace. College of Law, you know, they call it a year, but it's not. It's about eight or nine months worth of solid learning and hard work, frankly. Uh, yeah. Not meaning to put you off, but be re being realistic about that year. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I'm sort of looking forward to it, I, I think, after that. Um, so what were your first steps into the professional world after university in the College of Law? Well, by the time I left the College of Law, I did have a training contract lined up. Um, and... Uh, I, I was starting to make some decisions by then. Um, not least was the decision that uh, I wouldn't go to London. Um, and I think uh, it's, it's almost one of those decisions that you have to make early on. You know, will you go to London? That's where the bright lights in the big city and frankly, the big money is. Um, you know, even as, a, as a, uh, a trainee, you can be paid very well. Um, but I was also starting, to, I mean, I don't particularly like London as a place, but uh, I was also starting to hear that uh, training contracts in some London law firms were very generalised um, and that you didn't learn very much and you were a gopher, uh, but also that you worked extremely long hours. And I'm no stranger to work and I, I'm quite happy to work hard, but um, there was something about London that put me off and I didn't go for London. Um, by that point, um, I'd not only moved to Wales when I was 16, but despite going away to Southampton and then Guildford for College of Law, um, I'd met the, uh, my girlfriend and she became my wife. And so um, the, the, at that point, when I applied for a training contract, I applied in Cardiff and Bristol. To tell you how different things were then to now, um, I applied for six training contracts and uh, only um, and had five offers. Um, the firm that didn't offer me, the firm that became Eversheds, um, and I had six others from various uh, different types of firms in Cardiff and Bristol uh, with a pretty heavy commercial bias. So again, not actually what I went into in the end, um, but that, that was my thinking. Um, despite that route, which was going to be from College of Law straight into uh, a training contract in Cardiff, to study in, to, to, to train in what, would, what was a general high street practice, which I can tell you more about if you're interested. Um, but um, I, um, I went and took a year out in Canterbury, which is where my girlfriend was studying. Um, and that was intended to be a year out, some sort of a gap year. In fact, I ended up working in a very small firm called Parry's, a uh, three partner firm, I think they were then. They were a high street practice. They were literally above a bank in a high street. And um, with the chap that I met there, I started to do that, which, we, which I eventually specialised in. So I started to do some injury work and some clinical negligence work. And, um, but that said, I did also um, probate, um, uh, even some commercial mergers and acquisition type stuff. Uh, I remember distinctly buying, um, helping some managers of a paper mill down in Kent 
uh, by the managers bought the paper mill and we did a little bit of mergers and acquisition work. So it's the first time I came across the 2P regulations, the transfer of undertaking regulations that employ, uh, you know, um, protect employees. Um, and um, so, so that was my grounding in gen just generally working in a law office for the first time. I've done work experience in the past and I, I really do recommend work experience while you're at university. But that was my first um, proper experience of working in a law firm and getting paid to do it. And the uh, and, and that experience was, I've got to say, invaluable. And it was also interesting because that year, although it wasn't part of my training contract, also became the first year of my training contract by default, following an application to the Law Society, because it, you, you, I don't know if you know, but you can do, if, you, if, if the work you do in a law office uh, is the equivalent of the work you do under training contract. You can call it time to count. Um, there's, there's this phrase time to count. Um, and I think the same phrase is used these days, but es essentially you can use experience prior to your formal contract in counting up the total two year period that you need to, to qualify. Now that sounds like something that's quite good to do, doesn't it? Is it learning on the job and, and adding to the training contract, isn't it? Yeah. I literally took the job to pay the rent. Um, at the time, it was how I was going to get through that gap year. I, I applied to banks and building societies and estate agents and all sorts of different things uh, just, just to get a wage to tide me over for that year that I'd chosen to live with my girlfriend. But as I say, it became my first job in law. Sometimes that's how life goes, isn't it? I mean, it, it's just the, sort of the way it takes you, doesn't it? And it, ends, it sets you off on a path and so on. So... Um, what, so why did you choose to specialise in injury and negligence specifically? Was it just because of your experience at Paris, or do you think you have specific skills that might suit that as opposed to other specialities? Well, the route to it, I mean, so, so, uh, so at the age of, uh, what would that be, 22, I then moved back to Cardiff to take up that training contract that I'd arranged. That wasn't a general practice. It was in a firm called Loose Moors. Loose Moors is still going. But then um, Loose Moors... Uh, thought of themselves and were thought of as being quite uh, modern. They had uh, 13 officers across South Wales, much of them quite small. They had this, this uh, great idea of taking law to the people. So almost every suburb of Cardiff and Newport, uh, you would find a small office of Lusmores, which fed into a central hub, um, the central office of Lusmores. Um, and because we were so close to the public we did everything that the public wanted us to do so we covered all areas of work and we had a commercial area we dealt with business clients as well um in so so doing a training contract meant that oh, you talk about seats uh you know the, the time where you 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 deal with certain areas of laws you go through your training contracts um you could choose almost anything in loose laws because there was such a variation and uh, they had I think it was three trainees going through at any one point. So you had, because it was one and first and second year, you had six trainees. So it was a nice little group of people that you felt were your peers and going through the same sort of thing. Um, and because of the nature of the firm, the fact that there were six of us, you could almost get your choice of head, you know, of seat, as it were. Um, and that's again where I started to, to specialize. I did also do lots of other things, but uh, by the time I came through my training contract and qualified, by that point, I'd settled down. So I was doing uh, an even split of family law and negligence. If you, in negligence in the broader sense, meaning injury, clinical negligence, industrial disease, and that sort of thing. 
family law I did for about another two years after that um, and then really just got to the point where I thought it didn't suit me and I'm not sure I was suiting the clients uh, and I, I remember making the decision that I wouldn't take family law any further when I had a very uh, sad experience of on uh, I think it was the day before Christmas Eve I was in court with um, a husband and a wife who were getting divorced and they were arguing over who would have the children on Christmas Day and I mean that's a good thing to do but it's it, it's it's also uh, I can't say upsetting exactly because you have to remove yourself a little bit from the emotional aspects of these things whenever you're working as a professional you get close to you know the human element of the job but it was um i don't know it, i just felt that uh that that they ought to have been able to sort it out themselves and be a bit more sensible and not use the court system to resolve that kind of thing involving children two days away from christmas uh and i don't know whether that's a you know you can criticize me for thinking in those terms perhaps but that's that's that was when i made my decision that was the day i decided family law wasn't for me any longer anyway yeah, I, I, I totally get that. Yeah, it sounds like quite an experience the day before Christmas with two parents trying to see who gets the, the child on Christmas Day. Yeah, the same couple a few weeks earlier um, going through their financial settlement. I'd actually walked with the husband back to what had been the family home where the wife was living um, to accompany him getting his belongings out of the family home. So you, there's an element of social work with family work as well. Yeah, um, sounds like And it. also, also he was a bit of a bruiser. And uh, he, I mean, one of the allegations in the divorce was that he was aggressive. And um, there was an element of not being entirely sure that I was safe. <laughs> uh, but um, it all worked out well. But by then also, fam although family law then uh, went in the past for me, by then I was also working for the RAC doing motor work. Um, I was one of their online lawyers, despite I was, I was fairly junior in my career. I was one of the few online lawyers who was doing consumer work for them, the RAC and still some motoring organisations, offer to advise their members if they, for example, have a problem with a repair job or buying a new car or something like that. So I was doing work for the RAC. Um, that was almost a spin-off for the main road traffic accident work I was doing for the RAC and I also was working within a larger department that were dealing with road traffic claims generally for private individuals but also for bulk referrals that we were getting from some legal expense insurance companies. Legal expense insurance is not something you particularly come across when you're a student but um, a good percentage of us in the UK have legal expense insurance and it kicks in and covers legal actions if ever you need it to uh, particularly in the context of motor. Uh, lots of household policies have legal insurance attached to them as well. And they cover all sorts of different areas of work. Um, but it was that link to legal expense insurance that uh, again, started to become important for me in my career because um, it, it, it also led to a f almost a funneling of claims. Uh, almost the industry starts to feel industrial because people have accidents, they ring insurance companies or motoring organizations. And there's that capture going on of clients and um, the funneling of claims either you know, to, to certain areas, to rehabilitation, to hire vehicles, to lawyers. Um, and you start to see what almost looks like industrialization of the industry, uh, industrialization of claims. So that's, um, that's the kind of thing that I did until um, I was probably mid-20s dealing with claimant road traffic claims. So that was how I became specialized there. And moving on, 
into sort of my later 20s and, and going on, uh, I was um, yeah, obviously I, I, in claims you become a litigator. I, I'm a litigator. Um, and I dealt with a trial where I beat my opponent in an injury claim. Um, and uh, afterward, I had a call from his firm who were quite interested in recruiting me. So I was headhunted because I won a trial. And, uh, you know, that's how the industry works. You know, you, you meet people in, in claims and networking and trials and all sorts of other different ways. Uh, and effectively, I was headhunted. And that's how I started to go over the to the defence side of the claims industry. And I went to a law firm supposedly to handle some claimant work. But in fact, within weeks of being there, I was doing defence work and handling uh, claims for insurance companies, defending cases. And when you defend a, uh, that kind of a claim, what you're doing is assessing that, first of all, your client or their insured is liable, that, that some sort of a payment should be made. And then you're looking at other things, such as the size of the claim, the reasonableness of it, uh, whether causation is proven, um, and for that matter, whether there's fraud. Um, Lots of people in our industry talk about fraud as if it is a huge feature of the industry. I don't think it is, but I think it's a feature. Uh, so dealing with fraud and particular causation uh, has, has also become part of my working life. Yeah, so I, I think that leads us on to, to what you're doing now and how you got involved with Admiral and sort of how you said you start off as a solicitor, but now you're in more of a management role and how it played out for you. Um, so, so I start to do defence work um, and... I'm working for, at the time, big insurance companies like uh, Zurich, Norwich Union, AXA. And then this fledgling insurance company pops up in the middle of the 90s uh, called Admiral. And um, they were using another law firm locally who lost the case at trial for them because they hadn't properly proved a witness. And they started to look around for somebody else to handle their claims. And through the network, someone um, mentioned my name and I started to do work for Admiral Insurance within a, a year or so of them forming. Um, Admiral is a funny organisation when you come to it first as a lawyer, because uh, my first contact would have been in the mid 90s, mid, slight, mid midnight, about 96, I think. Um, and when I went to see their claims office, it was a quite small organisation, a few hundred people. Now they're about 10,000. Um, and when I went into their claims department, you go to other insurance companies, everyone's suited and they've got ties on and nice shiny black shoes. And Admiral wears shorts and t-shirts, even I then. When I went there to do some work experience in those department, I, I turned up in a, in a shirt and a pair of trousers on the first day and I was told tomorrow, tone it down a little bit, bring in a t-shirt. Very overdressed, Harry. <laughs> I should have warned you about that. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, uh, I mean, it, it's what a lot of people say when they first meet with Admiral, you know, but also in, in, as well as the shock of it being so casual, you begin to wonder, well, how can they be so successful when they when they're all walking around in shorts and T-shirts? And, you know, where's that public face forward that, you know, yeah. you think they'd be as professionals and working within the insurance industry? Um, don't let that fool you, is what I say, um, because... It really just reflects Admiral's attitude to the fact that people who are enjoying themselves work harder and do better. And I think that's the thing, you know, the, it, some law firms have dressed down Friday, don't they, where they take their ties off. Um, and some go even a bit further and wear a Hawaiian shirt or something. But um, 
I, really, I'm, I'm long since past all that. There's, there's just no need for formality. You, you need it when you appear in court. That's a different thing altogether. And some clients still like to have that formality, almost that distance, that um, preservation of authority and um, professionalism that comes with wearing a suit when you meet people. But yeah, it's a different thing. Um, so, uh, so I start, so as I say, when I first um, met with Admiral, that was one of the first things that shocked me. There was the, uh, the sort of informality of it all. Uh, but that was it. They were a small company and they were one amongst a, a larger portfolio of much bigger clients. But of course, they grew um, and they're now the I think they're the biggest motor insurer in the UK or they're certainly up against the likes of direct line Hastings. Um, and as they grew, I grew. I was uh, in a particular law firm, a decent sized regional law firm doing defense insurance work. And eventually I went off and formed my own law firm. I ran my own law firm for about 15 years. And within that law firm, I eventually started to take the defense referrals from Admiral Insurance. So I was acting for them as a defense lawyer there. That became, at some point I started to take claimant referrals. Uh, so as they sold legal expense insurance, I mentioned earlier, the claims that come from individuals who've just had prangs on the road or just had suffered injury or accident damage, they are, are offered legal assistance pursuant to their legal insurance. And I was receiving some of those referrals in my law firm. And together with Admiral Group, we started a joint venture called BDE Law. Uh, B, D and E were Bell, Diamond and Elephant.com and we took referrals from those brand names of Admiral and eventually BDE Law merged with Admiral Law and I merged my own law firm within, within BDE Law and then Admiral Law. Um, so that's how I come to be where I am within Admiral Law um, and I was a director within those various law firms and I'm now technical director within Admiral Law. So I... Um, Eventually, as you asked about my management role, I think, uh, throughout most of that which I've described so far, I was, a, as well as having management responsibilities, I was also a case handler of some sort. I, I literally lost, or finished rather, didn't lose it, um, finished my last claim last summer when I did a virtual joint settlement meeting on a catastrophic um, injury claim, a brain injury claim, July. Um, but uh, you, you become a manager and move, and in some ways move a, away from that which you're trained for a university and law school. I suppose if you're good at what you do, I'm not, I'm not blowing my own trumpet with any of that, but um, if you're good at, if you're a good claims handler, if you're good, if you're a good litigator, then um, at some point you'd start, you know, you start to mentor some of your junior colleagues. Or some of your colleagues that need help you know they refer things to you you become a, a team manager perhaps and then a departmental manager and eventually a partner or an owner of a law firm and that pretty much is is my career you in, inevitably you you move away from claims handling just because you have to because the pressures of being a manager are such that you can't do both and um I liked it when I tried to do both because you don't lose your touch. You keep in touch with developments in claims handling. 
um, has ever been close to something, you get the nuances, you know, the modern arguments and the, the latest things which are being litigated over. Um, but I think if you're exclusively a claims handler or a litigator, then what you don't see is the business side of, of uh, the law. I mean, business management in the law is an interesting thing. There's no doubt about that. You move away from the client facing role and you interview or you, you, you meet with fewer lay clients and perhaps fewer business clients as well. And to that extent, you're, you're, you're remote, you're removed from the cold face perhaps. Um, but that which you do see is, is also interesting and fascinating in another way. And this is the kind of stuff they don't teach you in law school. Um, now, Loosemore was that firm I mentioned very early, early yeah. much, much, much earlier on. There's a guy there called John Loosemore, the senior partner, and he was one of the very first lecturers in the law. And he used to do a course called What They Don't Teach You in Law School. And it was all about this stuff. Yeah. Um, and so that, that business management, what does that mean in the law? Well, it, it, it's stately obvious it means running a business. But that means looking at finance, looking at uh, tax, having people in place to... to run VAT and do your corporation uh, return, your, 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 your company accounts. It means that's assessing uh, risk and risk management. It means looking at industry developments, business planning, trying to, to assess volumes of work, staffing requirements, resources, uh, the case management systems that you might need, looking at information technology, um, Perhaps we can talk about COVID at some point in the business planning around COVID, but clearly uh, it has meant and always did mean looking at business continuity and uh, disaster recovery. So you have to have your systems in place for all of that. Uh, but generally just tactics, strategy, um, that's, that's, I suppose, what being a manager in the law is all about. And of course, you're not trained for these sorts of things in law school, as I've mentioned. Um, and in many ways, it was a problem with the law that those who manage law firms generally were brought up in the law and had studied law and been university and, you know, they were all lawyers, lawyers manage law firms. Um, Admiral law is interesting because it's an alternative business structure. And uh, again, you will grow up with this, but there was a time when non-lawyers could not own or manage law firms. That's not any longer the case, uh, but if you are, a, if as a non-lawyer you're looking to own or manage a law firm, you have to become one of these alternative business structures. Uh, now, ABSs um, have particular types of regulation and requirements, and uh, we at Admiral Law and BDE Law, we were both launched on the same day, they ran aside each other as almost, you know, associate companies for a while. Uh, we were... Must not forget now if we were the first or the second ABS in the country, but we were we we created that ABS when there was no handbook for it. You know, we literally were going off the primary legislation uh, to understand how an ABS would operate, and we were working with the regulator quite closely at that point. We even went up to the Solicitor's Regulation Authority uh, to um, to have discussions with them about what certain parts of the legislation meant and how they would regulate us and what what our proposals were for running a law firm. Um, so uh, the, the reason I mention all of that is that, uh, again, lawyers don't necessarily have to be the managers of law firms now. Um, the head of Admiral Law has a claims background, but is not uh, a qualified lawyer. And the small group of people with whom I manage Admiral Law 
uh, I haven't actually totted it up before, but I would guess um, it's round about an even split, I think, between solicitors and non-qualifieds. Uh, but when I say non-qualified, I mean strictly non-qualified in the law as you and I would talk about it, but they have other qualifications, obviously, including in finance um, and insurance particularly, uh, but also uh, you know business practices and management. So you mentioned it just a moment ago, the sort of elephant in the room of everything at the moment, and that's uh, coronavirus. Um, how has that sort of presented itself as a challenge for your work? And do you think sort of the changes that it's made companies bring in, such as virtual meetings and so on, will have a lasting impact? Will they will they stay after coronavirus, the, the restrictions have been lifted? And do you think it also is going to impact the sort of the skills that people going into the legal profession need, you know, becoming more uh, good with technology and so on yeah i mean covid um first of all i hope it's not in the room um, yeah <laughs> fingers crossed and uh, i just had a letter today saying i've got my jab on the 24th of march so oh, congratulations uh, uh, <laughs> congratulations yes it feels like it feels like you should get a congratulations yeah. when you, you hear about somebody getting the jab um covid what's covid done um covid has accelerated things i think um we were moving towards an online uh, you know, lots of developments in the law are, are online. It's a digital world, isn't it? State me obvious. But um, the kind of things that here we are recording this almost a year before we went into our first lockdown. Um, I think exactly this time last year, within Admiral Law, we were trialing work from home. WFH, you know, who knew we would have that abbreviation even at the beginning of 2020, WFH. Um, now, we were, so, so, so we were slightly ahead of the government's lockdowns. One of the benefits of working with an Admiral Law is that you're part of Admiral Group, and with all the resource behind the PLC, you have the ability to, to, to uh, and, and the resource to plan, forecast, prepare. So we were testing lockdown, if you like, uh, and work from home exactly this time last year. And then it happens, about a week or so later, it happens for real, and almost the whole country is sent home. Um, we were looking at all sorts of fairly novel problems even then, because when we'd done BCP and DR, you know, uh, testing in the past it was all about well what if there's a snow day what if there's a bomb scare what if the building burns down and the kind of things we tested were can you log in from home and can you see the case management system can you take phone calls um and we could do all of that but it was all predicated really on getting back to the office a few days later or or finding another office to work from a few days later you'd, you'd move to a service office block or something so the idea of not having for example the ability to print or write checks or sign things, we hadn't really put a lot of effort into. So within weeks, well, within days of uh, going into lockdown proper, uh, they're the kind of things we were working on. How would we manage without checks? I mean, there's, there are obvious other solutions such as backs and chaps and other ways of dealing with the banking system. Um, and so we just accelerated all of that work and made checks an absolute last resort. Printing, um, we have a centralised uh, print and post room anyway. Uh, so in the offices at Admiral Law Trade from in Newport and Cardiff, we usually do not 
print or post locally from there. Or it all is all sent off to another centre. Um, and that office was able to keep going to some extent with skeleton staff. But nevertheless, we cut down our printing uh, dramatically. That means increasing the use of email, which is already fairly heavily used anyway, but we have a, an online portal that we uh, communicate with our clients through. Um, signatures were a bit more troublesome because when you work in the area that we do, particularly in litigation, never mind pre-litigation, but litigation, you have to have a solution for getting signatures on documents, on court documents, on witness statements, on other evidence. And um, getting signatures on documents in that sense was a bit of a, an issue. And we had a, a long debate about how to do that and came up with solutions with reference to the civil procedurals. Um, remote working generally was, of course, a, a big thing. Court hearings are interesting nowadays. The, the civil courts, I mean, the criminal courts are worse, but the civil courts are quite backlogged. Um, we have hearings coming through now for, um, well, several months away. And, uh, but when, when hearings do come around, they tend to be either telephone hearings. Telephone hearings have been a thing for a, a good long while, irrespective of COVID. Um, but um, video trials is a relatively new idea. Uh, not a new, not a new idea as, as such, because I'm probably expressing that badly, but as it being a common everyday occurrence, video trials, that, that is a new thing. And we have video trials almost every day of the week now. Um, now, a video trial means uh, the obvious in the sense that there is a virtual platform where you can see the judge and the judge can see you. Um, you've got your opponent on the line. Your claimant and defendant are also on the same link and as are any witnesses. Um, which any of you who've dealt with a Zoom call will think, well, that's not difficult. Any of you, anyone could do that. But then you throw in the difficulties with giving evidence, the fact that somebody has to have a trial bundle in front of them that they can refer to, that has to be paginated and then exactly the same format as everybody else so that everybody can be on the same page at the same time. And that the claimant and defendant and the witnesses are probably not professionals and may have, may have never used these platforms before. They might have used Zoom, but there are, there's a particular platform that the courts use by preference these days that they probably never have used before. And there are lots of there's lots of trickiness around remote trials and virtual trials. Um, keeping up with the law is, has been a problem, of course, as well. Um, just keeping up with the COVID regulations uh, because the simple messages the government put out, such as stay home, um, in fact, are not quite that straight forward because the law doesn't match the guidance and the law has never actually well i'm not going to all that because it's, it's a long conversation that you probably could do with a specialist barrister advising you on there's a if, if you don't know him already there's a guy called adam wagner um, I, I, yeah i i yeah. Adam. he's very good the way he managed to keep up with it all yeah on twitter he is absolutely superb yeah um he's how i keep up with the coronavirus yeah, and same, public yeah. health regulations um, but keeping up with that's a challenge. Um, other interesting things that might not first occur to you, but um, you know, how else has COVID affected the kind of work that I do? Uh, we have, uh, obviously, dealing with injury claims, we regularly use medical experts and uh, rehabilitation providers. So we arrange, or we can arrange for our clients, virtual rehabilitation, virtual physiotherapy, and 
certain rules have been changed to allow for virtual medical examinations for experts reports as well. Um, so that's, that's uh, sort of another novelty that comes with COVID. Straightforward business planning, of course, the, one of the difficulties is uh, supervision. How do you keep track of all, your, uh, all of the things going on in, in the law firm? Uh, that can be tricky. Uh, other things like morale and team bonding and keeping spirits up, that's also tricky. Um, uh, monitoring health generally provide, in, in Wales we've, um, since um, lockdown a year ago, by and large, the whole of the firm, and there's about 550 of us, the whole of the firm has been worked from home. We've had one or two people allowed back into our offices when the lockdown restrictions have allowed us, when strictly necessary, but we've moved and almost become a virtual law firm. Um, now, for when we have gone back to work, when we've allowed people to go back in, then we've had a whole induction process. We've obviously had to follow the different changes in the health and safety guidance and regulations. Um, and the other thing that becomes all important when it comes to business planning is, particularly for a firm specializing in road traffic claims, we do other things, but we deal with road traffic claims, um, is the impact of COVID on traffic volumes because clearly if everyone is at home and doing what they should be doing and staying home, then they're gonna be in their cars a lot less. And um, one of the, the, the new arts uh, or science, I'm sure which it is probably both, uh, is around business projection, volume pr pr predictions. Um, that's that's uh, clearly you've got, to, you've got to work out what your assumptions are and the, and the, the, the forecasting can follow from that, but that, uh, in itself is is a, is a something which we didn't have to do to the same extent prior to COVID. And um, the one other thing I'll mention just before finishing on COVID is that the when the when when we first have lockdown um, and law firms rush home like everybody else, uh, we've obviously got a huge backlog of current caseload uh, of claims, some in the court, some pre-litigation, and they all need to keep going. We need to resolve things. Um, people can't, for example, have a road accident and not be without payment for their car. You've got to keep people, people's claims going. You've got to keep, keep uh, money going to your clients. <clears throat> um, there was certainly a time at which other law firms were not coping as well as we were. They didn't have the same resource and online infrastructure. Um, and there was also perhaps a law at a time when a, when various insurance companies were struggling to cope. Um, so we developed lots of either formal or informal understandings, protocols, um, industry agreements as to what we would and wouldn't do. Um, it, you know, it, it might, again, it's a really simple point to make, but just not writing to each other, not putting paper in the mail so you haven't got to have people in post rooms so that everything becomes electronic. Um, you know, you, you are dealing with a profession that still relies on wet signatures and paper and court documents. Um, so to just pull the whole industry up by its straps and, and push it towards that digital, uh, di digital way of working. That was another thing that was, you know, super important. So your last question, Harry, was um, what, what would stay, what would hang around when COVID's yeah, gone? Yeah, do you think that these changes are going to stay for the future? 
Uh, some, I, I think, will. Um, the danger with the online world is fraud, to mention the F word again. Um, the, you know, you, if you're dealing with clients remotely, and if you're having them examined by experts remotely and then assessed by a judge remotely, I think there's the possibility of more fraud. Um, We've seen fraudsters really try to up their game in uh, financial scams, Um, not particularly within our firm, but you you, you see it generally, don't you, across all industries, not just the law. Uh, So I think there's a real danger that fraud thrives online whereas it wouldn't so much if we were in the office and had some of our more normal ways of dealing with things. But I think digital hearings, digital court hearings, probably are here to stay. Um, If I had been asked, uh, you know, a year or so ago, prior to all of this, do you think you can settle a multi-million pound brain injury claim via an online joint settlement meeting, uh, you know, really, I would have said, no, we just got to wait for this disease to pass through. It'll have to be delayed. We'll have to wait until we can get in the same room as our opponents again. On the day of that joint settlement meeting, we had a platform where in a joint room, we were all able to discuss the case together. We had breakout rooms where within our own legal teams, we could discuss the case. And we even had separate WhatsApp groups running where we could trade less formal messages um it worked fantastically well it saved me getting up at five o'clock in the morning to get a train to manchester um you do save on travel you save on the commute um so even for the more serious claims and the more complex claims i've been quite impressed at how the you know the digital remote online world works Um, And certainly for smaller claims, you know, the uh, small claims track cases, by which I mean property damage claims less than £10,000, they can be dealt with very easily in a a digital world. And I think that judges are getting used to them as well. The judiciary, as far as I can work out, is quite accepting that a lot of this is here to stay. Some of the amendments to the civil procedure rules are temporary at the moment, but I do just just wonder whether in fact they might become more permanent. And the one other thing which has become a feature, um, and again, almost forced upon us because of the civil backlogs in the courts, we are looking at um, online alternative dispute resolution. So the courts are backlogged. Um, How do you get an early trial date for your client? One of the obvious ways is online ADR where you have a barrister, usually, who's specialist in the area in which you operate, and he determines the case, either on paper or via a hearing with witnesses, uh, or, or just advocates making submissions. But I can see online ADR working, and I can see digital hearings being a feature of life going forward, you know. Okay, so um, I, think, I think you mentioned briefly about how... Um, Certainly, the coronavirus uh, regulations, things change so quickly. Um, as a lawyer whose job it is to interpret things and act on uh, acts of parliament, um, in a world where certainly we've seen with this government, they change uh, legislation very quickly. It can be done, especially with uh, Matt Hancock. I think he's changed the coronavirus legislation something like 70 times the last year, often just by using his pen, just a flick of his pen, and uh, they all change. How does that 
sort of fast-paced change affect a business whose job it is to interpret acts of parliament uh, specific in that um how we mentioned before about the whiplash um changes how, how that affects so a change like that with such short notice um affect how you plan as a business sort of thing or sort of changes yeah, yeah. that would have as well as the coronavirus if you want to go into that as well well um I'm not going on a political rant about the uh, public health <laughs> regulations, the fact that they, they change almost twice a week and sometimes with one minute notice prior to midnight. Yeah. Um, but the, the whiplash, I mean, that, there's an example of um, non-transparent, non-stable law, if you like, the, the public mm -hmm. health regulations. Um, if you look at the whiplash regulations, I mean, that's almost um, a good example of things not moving at speed, despite the fact that the rules have just been dropped and we've got you know, round about three months to plan for them. And the reason I say, despite that, it's not acting at speed is the uh, the idea of behind the whiplash reforms was first introduced by Osborne in his autumn statement about six years ago now. And um, a few years after that, the Civil Liability Act 2018 was brought in. And that's largely stat sat on the uh, statute books and not being not been enabled until a few weeks ago. Um, now, coronavirus probably has slowed down the introduction to some of those uh, provisions. Um, and in fact, there's no doubt that that has been the case because obviously civil justice had other things to think about and other things to cope with and the Ministry of Justice was uh, struggling to cope like everybody else. Um, but after that long period of preparation and uh, slow preparation, if you like, at the Ministry of Justice, um, then rules are dropped. Now, the whiplash rules for those of you, the whiplash reforms for those of you who haven't been following it are, it's a new set of provisions that provide, if you have sustained a whiplash injury, which is defined now by statute, which is a soft tissue injury to neck, back and shoulder, last, lasting less than two years, caused by driver negligence when a person is in, on, or entering or leaving a vehicle. I think I've just about summarised the definition there. Um, then that case um, is subject to certain tariffs. So valuing injury claims is not done in the normal way. That type of injury claim is not done in the normal way with reference to case law and judicial study um, guidelines judicial college guidelines. Um, you look at tariffs to scale. It's very easy to do. There's two columns and you look at the, the length of the injury lasts and you read across the column, straightforward. Um, by and large, the amounts that you get are much reduced and therefore many more claims come within the small claims track than they did previously. And the small claims track is amended as well. So there's all sorts of spin-off um, changes to the way claims are dealt with. Now, um, the way I've described it, that doesn't sound like much, but in fact, there's a whole load of detail behind all of that in primary statute, several statutory instruments, um, amendments to the civil procedure rules, um, and a, a new portal, a new protocol, um, and a guide to uh, for, for those using the portal. So there's a lot to get your head around. Uh, most of those rules were introduced, uh, released rather, about two weeks ago, and they go live on the 31st of May. Um, now, there's a good example of after lots of delay, real speed, because uh, 
the, the, the whole of the industry dealing with those sort of cases is having to prepare really a, a, a relatively short notice. Uh, and that involves, of course, looking at all of those things, which I mentioned earlier, when you're talking about business management, um, uh, finance, funding, uh, IT processes, case management systems, dealing with clients, terms and conditions of business, um, business planning, business forecasting, all of that comes out of these new regulations. Um, and not seeing the detail around that um, with more than three months notice is a challenge. Yeah. Okay, um, so before we finish, a few quick fire questions, if that's all right. Yeah. Um, what, would, what would you say are the key skills you would suggest an aspiring lawyer would need? Uh, be a sponge, yeah. um, absorb things, try, try all sorts of experiences, try different areas of the law, um, get some work experience, get out there in the in industry. If you're thinking about working in the law, get out there. Uh, and even if you're not sure, well, perhaps even if you don't think you're going to go into the law um, as a profession, I would still say try it because you might like it. And I think it's different in practice than it is at university. I think it's a completely different um, academic subject to what it, to that which it is in practice. Um, is there anyone that has inspired or influenced you during your journey through the law? Um, I'm going to go back to someone that none of you have ever heard of apart from in my earlier uh piece when I was talking about Paris, that firm in Kent. Uh, there was a guy there called Alan Robertson, give him a name check, and um, he took an unusual route into the law in the sense that uh, nowadays we, there's a very well structured way of becoming a qualified solicitor, but he worked um, just jobbing in the office for six years and eventually that counted. You could call it, I mean, going back to the 60s, I think now, um, but that was a way of qualifying. And I think that did him very well because he understood all parts of the business. Um, and frankly, was one of the best litigators I've ever worked with. And he was superb. He was a very good advocate as well. Um, and learned on the hoof, learned on the job. Um, and I think that's a great way of, um, of, of doing it. It sort of reinforces my point about be a sponge and try all sorts of different things and just get some general experience before yeah. you settle down. I don't say don't settle down because you can become niche, but... I think to become niche, you almost got to understand what you're missing and what the other areas do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and for, for the final question, I think the most important one, um, and correct answers only, please. As an Englishman who's lived in Wales for a few years now, um, who would you want to win in a World Cup final, any sport, England or Wales? Oh, I was going to say you've got to define your terms because if it's, it depends on the sport so much, doesn't it? Uh, for me, anyway, because... Um, and I could flip this on you, Harry, because you're a Welshman in, in England. Yeah. Uh, but um, I'm going to say if it's rugby, it's Wales. If it's football, it's England. And you could challenge me and ask me to reason that out. And of course, there's no reasoning in this. It's sport and it's emotion. Um, I think when I when I lived in the northeast, um, I don't particularly remember rugby union being a big thing. So when I came down to Wales, it was the passion. And the first time I went to the... Um, the Cardiff Arms Park, which you'll know, Harry, is a, is a rugby stadium just outside of Westgate Street, uh, right in the town centre, surrounded by all the shops and um, it's bang in the middle of the town. Uh, just the, the passion, it was crazy. It was, match day in, in Cardiff is crazy. You can't help but fall in love with Welsh rugby. Um, but for football, apart from one or two uh, bright moments in Welsh, Welsh football, uh, there's, there's not much to, uh, to say. Uh, 
but generally for the World Cup or something like that, and I'm supporting England. If it was ever England against Wales in the World Cup, I don't know who I'd support, frankly. Well, I think I think I can let you off with that one. I'll accept that. Um, thank <laughs> It'll you, never happen Michael. anyway. <laughs> thank you so much for your for your time. I've I've thoroughly enjoyed it, and I hope it's been informative for everyone listening. You're very welcome, Harry. Nice to speak to you. Keep safe, everyone. Love to speak to you too. If there are any Newcastle law students listening who would like to get involved, or an academic or legal professional who would like to talk about their work on the podcast, please email nelr at newcastle.ac.uk. Thank you very much.